Thank you. Boys and girls ages four years old through the fourth grade. I head out to Children's Church this morning. You and Mrs. Kane, I'm sure, have some good things planned for you today. Take your Bibles, please, and turn to Ephesians chapter 2 this morning. Ephesians chapter 2. We have concluded our study now in Ephesians 1, getting into chapter 2 this morning. Our text, Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10, the first 10 verses of Ephesians 2. We saw last Sunday morning, by the way, as you remember, the last two verses of chapter 1, three verses, that Jesus Christ is majestic. He is far above in position and rank and power. He is far above everything and everyone, including the angels. He also is the head of the church, which is his body, his bride. We read verses 21, 22, and 23, and that leads right into chapter 2 because there's an obvious question that would be asked at the end of chapter 1. Far, Jesus Christ was, well, let's read 20 also, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand, far, excuse me, at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. And hath put all things under his feet, and gave him to be the head over all things to the, first time this word is found in Ephesians, to the church. The church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. I think the question obviously then should be asked, so if this church is the body of Christ, if the church is made up of all true believers in the Lord, beginning on the day of Pentecost and all the way up to the rapture of the church, then why would it be important to be in this church? We're not talking about a local church now. As I mentioned last week, the local church is mentioned often in scriptures. Different local churches in different places. But as far as the church goes here, it's really the body, all believers everywhere. We just prayed for our missionary, the Tylers down there in Brazil. We have not seen the members of the church down there, the local church there, or the churches there, many churches. But if they're truly saved, those in those churches who are truly saved are a part of the body of Christ. They're in Christ. And if, they're, if they are in a local church, but they're not a true believer in Jesus Christ, then they may be in a local church, but they're not in the church of Christ. You understand that? Say amen. So those who are in Christ, in the true church, the universal church, the question would be asked, so then, so how do you get in there? Who needs to be in there? Why does somebody have to be in there? In where? In this body of Christ, the church. Could we just rephrase that? Why do you need to be saved? If the church is made up of only saved people, then why does anybody need to be saved? Saved from what? How can salvation even be possible? And what do you do to be saved? And that takes the message, it introduces the message of the first 10 verses of Ephesians 2. Follow along, please. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the churn of disobedience, 
among whom also we all had our conversation in time past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together, made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show forth the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are ye saved through faith, that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Let's pray. Father, please help us, I pray, this morning as we open the scriptures now in this part of our service, the most important part of this worship service, I pray, Father, that you will help us to understand your message here. And I pray, Father, that when we leave this place at the end of this message, that there will not be a single person here who has not personally received the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That's our supreme desire, Father, for the glory of Christ. And those of us who are saved, we might be perhaps different in how we think of things, that we might see where we came from and what you did to provide for our salvation and how you, you got us born again by your spirit. May we live lives of gratitude and praise. So bless this time of preaching thy word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, why do we need to be saved? Because there's some questions that have would come to our minds here. First of all, why do we need to be in Christ's church? Why do we need to be in the body of Christ? Why do we need to be a true Christian saved? And really the summary is in verse 1 and then the further explanations in verses 2 and 3. Verse 1, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. We need to be saved because of our lost condition. Because everyone who is not saved is spiritually dead, although obviously most people don't know that. What you have here are people who are, who are physically alive but spiritually dead. And it is possible that in our service this morning there are people who would meet that explanation or definition, that condition. You are here physically. Your heart is beating. Your, your lungs are helping you breathe. You walked in the door, you're sitting down listening, and when the service is over, you will walk out the door, you will physically go home, you are very much physically alive, but in your heart, your spiritual nature, you are physically dead. Absolutely physically dead. It says, and you hath he quickened who were what? Dead, dead in trespasses and sins. What's this mean? Separated from God in your spiritual nature. Absolutely separated from God in your spiritual nature. And by the way, we are not spiritually dead because we have committed some sins. We were born spiritually dead. We were born sinners. We were born with a sinful nature. Dead. Dead without life. Think about this. When we came into this world, we were physically alive now, but still spiritually dead. Why? Because we were, the, we were without spiritual life. Basically, we were unresponsive to God. We are separated from God. We are 
unable to understand any spiritual truth. And that is the condition of every lost person. As I thought about this message all during the week, I thought, you know, what a sad condition. You hath he quickened or made alive, who were before you were saved, dead in your trespasses and sins. No connection with God. Total separation from God. No understanding of God. No understanding of spiritual truth. And the mass of humanity today, that's how they live. I was reading a news article late last night. And I thought, how sad. How sad. They have more than anyone could imagine in the wealth of this world. You talk about prestige. You talk about celebrities. You're talking about household names for most people. And I thought, you know what? Totally separated from God. Totally unresponsive to God. Absolutely have no understanding whatsoever of spiritual truth. And they cannot because they're not saved. You say, when did that ever start? When they started living in sin? No, no, no. That started when they came out of their mother's womb. Spiritually dead. Psalm 51 verse 5, David said, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. I was born a sinner. Romans 5, 12, speaking of Adam, Wherefore, as by one man, Adam, sin came into the world, and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So you say, well, people are, people are sinners because they sin. No, 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 you got it backwards. People sin because they're sinners. You understand the difference? We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're natures. We're born with a sinful nature. So what can a dead person do to help himself? What's the answer to that question? What can a dead person do to help himself? Out loud? Nothing, we'll be seeing this later in the, in the, in the message here. We can't, we, can't, we can't do anything on our own behalf. If we're dead, we're unresponsive. So in order for a dead person to be quickened, to be made alive, verse 1, God's going to have to do something. God's going to have to do the work. And by the way, when God does the work in history, and when God does the work in the heart of a dead person, does it make sense then that when a dead person becomes alive and you hath he quickened who were, when you were saved, dead in trespasses and sins, if we can't do anything, we're unresponsive because we're dead and God has to do something, then does it make any sense to you that when God does something, we ought to give him the, the glory? We ought not boast in ourselves, and we'll, look about, we'll talk about that later, too, but right now, look at verse 8. For by grace are ye saved through faith, not of yourselves, because we're dead. It is the gift of God, not of works. An unsaved person can't do any works. Not of works. Why? Lest any man should boast. And then you have in verses 2 and 3, you have a further explanation of what we were like as a lost person. While we were lost in our sins, while we were spiritually dead, what was that all about? Why? How? Well, we have three things in verses 2 and 3. 
Three things. First of all, God says as a summary here, could we just say this? We walk, which means to walk. We lived our lifestyle according to three things. And this all began at the second of birth. As we grew up then as an infant and then a toddler and then preschool and then kindergarten and then elementary school and junior high and senior high and perhaps college or the military or getting married and then having a family and whatever all the way through the life. There were, there were three things that dominated our lives. And you can put this down. These are the three things that dominate the life of every unsafe person. If you are here today and you are not yet a Christian, you may not know it now, but these are the three things that dominate your lifestyle. Your lifestyle comes out of these three things. Number one, would you look at verse two? We're in, in times past when before you were saved. You walked, you lived your lifestyle according to, first of all, he says, the course of this world. The course of this world. You lived according to this world. Humanity's values Humanity's attitudes, humanity's standards, but here's the key phrase, apart from God. Literally, it is life lived apart from God. What would you expect? We're spiritually dead. So we lived according to this world, the course of this world. Think about society. Think about culture. Think about everyday life in America or around the world, whether in a small little town or a big city, with a lot of money or a little money, no matter whether you're a man or a woman or a child or a teenager, no matter what your family's like, if you're still unsaved, you are living according to the Thoughts, the plans, the desires, the pleasures, the likings, the, all the ideas of lost humanity. Basically, it is, again, life with God on the outside. I put it this way, the thoughts, the desires, the pleasures that are all typical of those who don't know God. And I want to say this before we go to the second thing. The things of the world can be, quote-unquote, good things. When we think of worldly, we usually think of, like, evil things. Yeah, unsaved people, they just do all these wicked things, these worldly things. No, that's not what he's talking about. It's life totally without God. It can be refined. It can be cultural. It can be high society. It can be educational. It can be... Material, it can be a fun, pleasurable, nothing wrong with thing or activity, desire. But the thing that makes it worldly is it has no connection with God. And I don't think people understand it. This is spring break. I have a full week plan, and most of it's not break time. It's work time. And with every passing second of every day, it seems like it's more and more becoming work week. I thought, boy, it would be nice just sometime this week to just get away from all the work and go have some fun. So what did I do? I grabbed my phone. I went to 4 Warren 4, and I checked the weather out for the week, and I tried to pick the warmest day with the least wind that I could maybe get in around the golf. You say, golf? Is that a wicked thing? I hope not. 
You gamble? Nope. But golf, is it a Christian thing? You see, what I'm saying is, I hope to go out and walk 18 holes of golf and get some sunshine and fresh air, and I hope I beat a couple of guys. And I hope I just have fun, okay? But still, don't, don't fall apart. Golf is still, by definition, it's a worldly thing. You say, man, I quit this Baptist Independent Church. It has nothing to do with Baptist. I'm just trying to tell you that, that it's, it can be a good thing. When I get finished playing golf, I'll never do this. I have no desire to do this. I'm so glad my wife doesn't want to do this. But somebody said, why don't you go to an art gallery? I have no desire to go walk around an art gallery. <laughs> but if I did, hey, by the way, Bob Jones University, when I was a student, they had the the world's most famous art gallery, I mean, worth who knows how many hundreds of thousand dollars, those, those famous religious paintings is unreal. It was required for every freshman, every freshman during the first, well, I think it was first six weeks of school, you had to go through the art gallery. I had friends that spent an hour in the first room of 32 rooms. That didn't include the museum, art gallery and museum. It took me 30 minutes or less to go, I'm embarrassed to say this, no I'm not. It took me 30 minutes or less to walk through the whole art gallery museum just to say I had been there. Give me an A, okay? That's just me. Now there are people in this room who say, I can't even relate to that pastor. I would just like to stand there. Wonderful, wonderful. But what I'm trying to tell you, and I don't want to, I shouldn't be taking this much time, okay? I got too much to preach. Whether it's, whether it's walking around a golf course for four hours or walking through an art gallery in one hour, okay? It's just basically worldly. And there's nothing wrong with that, so to speak, as far as sin or righteousness goes. The fact is, it still is basically life without God. It's still God on the outside. What I'm trying to do is help you say it's not just going to dances and casinos and bars and, and all this other kind of stuff that makes it worldly. It's just whatever society and cultural has that's to be interested in and consume our thoughts and our, our, our desires and our pleasures and fun. It's just basically life. Society, culture, but God on the outside. Oh, what about the second thing? The second thing. We're in, in times past, you walked according to the course of this world. According to the prince of the power of the air. Who's that all about? We didn't just walk according to the world now. But we walked according to the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that now worketh in the churn of disobedience. He's called Satan. In the four gospel books, Jesus oftentimes called him the prince of this world. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, he's called the God of this world. In the Bible, he has titles, he has names that go along with his character, his aims, and his desires. He's called the father of lies. Why? Because he's a liar. He's called the deceiver. Why? Because he deceives people. He's called the wicked one. Why? Because he's the prompter of wickedness. He's called the tempter because he tempts people. He's called many other things, but they're all the same person. His name is Lucifer or Satan or the devil. And you know what God says? Listen, before you were saved, you were on his team. You followed his promptings. You thought like he wanted you to think. You were interested in what he wanted you to be interested in. 
and you did pretty much what he encouraged you to do. And it might be a life of doing all fun, exciting, absolutely good, nothing wrong with things. As long as you never, ever repent of a sinful heart and trust Jesus Christ. So one day after this life lived in the family of Satan, doing all the things, and it, and it might even be to encourage you to be a little religious or very religious, as long as it's church and religion without the risen, crucified Christ. And then one day, whether you're 20 years old or 40 years old or 60 years old or 100 years old, you die and you go to hell because all of your physical life you were spiritually dead walking according to Satan walking according to the world and he's not finished verses 2 and 3 wherein in times past before you were saved you walked according to the course of this world according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation, our lifestyle in times past. Again, reminds us, this is before you got quick and made alive. We all had our conversation in times past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. What's that all about? Our sinful fleshly nature. Not our physical body's flesh, but our spiritual nature. The lust, he said, that which simply means cravings, desires. And again, they may not be lusting, craving, obviously, openly wicked things. It's just, what do we want? What do we desire? What's life all about to us? When I come to the end of a day, what made it a good day, a happy day? If I get all my desires, all my dreams, if they all come true, what's it all about? The cravings, the desires, the lust that come from our fleshly nature. And by the way, as I mentioned earlier, we received this fleshly nature when we got born. We got it from Adam. We we're born with this nature. And by the way, you know what? When, you think, when I think about this sinful nature, human nature, how do you define it? How do you describe how it works and what it's all about? There are two, there are three words that come to mind. Number one, selfishness. Number two, self-centeredness. Number three, pride. P-R-I-D-E. Our sinful nature is all about us. It's all about me. Me, myself, and I. It's what I like. It's what I want. It's what I want to put my energy on, what I want to think about, what I want to talk about, what I want to live for, what I want to enjoy, how I want to believe about things. It's all about me. It's all about flesh. It's all about the nature that I was born with. And because the world is real, and it is very, very enticing. It's very glamoring. It has a lot of things to offer. It seems like every day there's something, something new and exciting we can get on. Because Satan is very subtle. He's very experienced. He's very powerful. He's not all powerful like God. But he is a powerful being that is far above whatever we can imagine we have to deal with. Because of the, the world's influence 
and invitations and enticements. And Satan's deceiving, lying promptings. It is very, very easy for our sinful nature to cooperate and give in. And that's how we live. And what does God say? That's the way you were before you were saved, even if you didn't know it. But you, Christian, hath God made alive who used to be dead in your trespasses and sins, who walked according to this world, who walked according to Satan, who walked according to your sinful nature. And then he says something else here that a lot of people, I don't know why they skipped the next verse. It says whom, I'm sorry here, it says the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, the end of verse 2. Among whom also you all had our conversation in times past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by, and were by nature the children of, what's the next word? The children of wrath. What's that all about? Whoever thinks about that. The children of wrath. I thought of John 3, 36. Everybody in the world is put into one of two categories, believers in Jesus Christ and non-believers. John 3, 36, he that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. He that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Romans 1, 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. I mean, when you think about it, people who are born lost, dead in sins, separated from God, and therefore they spend their days or weeks or months or years, if they're not saved, they spend their whole lifetime walking after the world and the flesh and the devil. They are bound for judgment and hell. They are living every day of their life. They are living, so to speak, on death row, waiting for the execution. It's called judgment and hell. They are children of wrath, even as others, and they have no clue. You say, well, pastor, it sounds pretty hopeless. It sounds pretty helpless. I mean, if we're, if we're spiritually dead, which means we're unresponsive, we, we can't even initiate anything because we're dead, and we're living under this control of the world and the flesh and the devil, and it's nonstop, and we don't even know it. We're living, abiding under the wrath of God one day to be executed in judgment in hell. Then we've got a helpless, hopeless situation. There's nothing we can do, right? Well, right and wrong. There's nothing we can do. But there is something that, would you like to finish it? That God has done and God can do. Because look at the first two words of verse 4. Out loud, please. First two words of verse 4. Out loud, but God. What a word of contrast, but. Because verses 1, 2, and 3 is nothing but bad news, right? There's no, there's no good news in 1, 2, and 3. It's all bad news. But it's not helpless, it's not hopeless, because even though we are spiritually dead, but God. Really? Yeah, God has done three things. God is three things. He does three things. And it's all about being made alive, or being made alive. But God, who is, first of all, he says, God is rich in mercy. 
What is mercy? Undeserved kindness. You've heard this. God not giving me what I deserve. And it doesn't just say that God is merciful. It says, but God who is rich in mercy. What does that mean? He's abundant in mercy. He's overflowing in mercy. God is wealthy in mercy. So when he sees, when a person sees, I'm lost. I'm separated from God. I'm a sinner. I need to be forgiven. I need to be rescued. I need to be saved. There's no hope for me. Somebody says, yeah, there's hope. There is. What is it? Let me tell you about God. He is very merciful. Let me say, God is more eager to save you than you are to be saved. God delights in a person saying, how can I be saved? Because I have a terrible, terrible need. My condition is so bad. My heart is so wicked. Is there any hope for me? And God says, yeah, there is. Because I'm a merciful God. Not only am I a merciful God, I am wealthy. I'm, I, I go above and beyond regarding mercy. And by the way, if that's not enough, the Bible tells us that God is merciful because his mercy comes out of something else. If he wasn't this something else, he wouldn't be merciful. Look at it again, verse 4. But God who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us. The word for means because of, or because or on account of. You've got to put this together. God who is rich in mercy because of or on account of his great love wherewith he loved us. So now we not only have the mercy of God, we have the love of God. God's mercy springs out of his love. He's merciful because of his great love. What does it say in 1 John 4, 8? God is love. God in his very nature is love. God is love if there wasn't anyone to love. If Jesus Christ had never come to this earth, it's still a fact, God is love. Because the Bible says it's part of God's nature. God is love. He's a loving God. But it's interesting and it's amazing that God has done something to reveal his love. He's done something to manifest his love. He's done something to show forth his love so that people can say, yeah, I know that God is love, not just because the Bible says God is love, but because of what God did. I love 1 John 4, verse 9. I think it's verse 9. In this was manifested. The word manifested means revealed, shown forth, put out for people to see it. In this was manifested the love of God toward us. In that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. Oh, verse 10, the next verse. Herein is love. Not that we love God. How could we? We're dead in sins. But that he loved us. And he sent his son to be, to be the propitiation, the full satisfaction for our sins. So how do I know that God is love? God is love because he gave, will you tell me, Together, First John, excuse me, John three sixteen. Almost every Sunday morning, quote it with me, please. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's how we know God loves us. In this, the love of God was manifested. 
he sent forth his only begotten son into the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And the Bible says that Jesus Christ loved the church, gave himself for it. He did? Yeah. What did he say on the cross? It is finished. What was finished? All that was necessary for a person to be quickened, to be made alive, who's spiritually dead. Of all of the sins we've ever committed, they could be gone in a second. The moment we receive by faith Jesus Christ because he died for our sins. He was buried. He rose again the third day from the dead. He ascended back to his father. He's in heaven today, just as real there as we are here. And, it's, and salvation is all about the mercy of God, not God, God not giving us what we deserve because of his, his undeserved kindness toward us which is all based on his love that he sent his only son. And then, oh, he's not even finished. But God, verse 4, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, even when we were dead in sins, he hath quickened us together with Christ. By, what's this now? By grace ye are saved. Saved by grace? He hath raised us up together. He made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus. For by grace, three times we've got grace. Well, what is grace? Grace, like mercy, springs from God's love. Because God is love, God's merciful. Because God is love, God is gracious. Grace, undeserved favor. Grace, God not giving me what I deserve, that's mercy. Now God gives me what I don't deserve, that's grace. And by the way, just like mercy, God is not just gracious. He is rich in grace. Where was that? But God who is rich in mercy for his great love with you loved us. Even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace are you saved. Hath raised us up together, made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come, he might show, here it is, the exceeding, not just riches now, the exceeding, over and above, the exceeding riches of his grace. None of us can comprehend the wonderful, wonderful truth of the grace of God. And it's something that we should never, ever get over. And I know I don't have time to preach everything that's in my notes. I just can't skip over this. Would you look please at verse 6 and 7? God hath raised us up together. He made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why? You say, why? Why God's mercy? Why God's love? Why God's grace, rich grace, exceedingly rich grace? Why? You say, I know why. So God did all this so I won't have to go to hell. No, he did it for more than that. He did love us. He does have mercy on us. He does show us grace, giving us everlasting life and forgiveness and salvation from hell, which we do not deserve. But that's not the main reason God does all this. 
verse 7, that in the ages to come, he might show forth the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Jesus Christ. You say, Pastor, what is that all about? Well, it ties in with our evening series on the second coming of Jesus Christ. Because as God makes us alive, as God saves us, the message of the mercy and the love and especially the grace of God is open for anyone and everyone to see, including the angels of God. And it said, and hath raised us up together, that in the ages to come, what is that all about? That's the age, one age rolled onto another age, rolled into another age, rolled into another age, and, and, and when does it end? It never ends. There's an old southern gospel song. I've only heard it once or twice. As soon as I heard it, I thought, I like that song. I wonder if it's in a book someplace. Something like, and when the ages roll, I'll keep on trucking. Probably Ron Smith probably knows it. <laughs> and when the ages roll, I'll keep on trusting him. Okay, we're going to keep on trusting God through all eternity as one age rolls into another age. But there's even something better than that. While all the eternal ages roll on and on and on and on, never ending, that which will bring most Glory to Jesus Christ is the fact that heaven is filled with redeemed people because of the exceeding riches of God's grace. And how sad that unsaved people don't even understand. They've never heard about that. They don't even think about that. Yeah, salvation is more than a fire escape. It's the fact that Jesus Christ, God's only begotten son, would be willing to come from heaven to earth and take everything he took and be crucified. And yet it wasn't defeat. It was victory. Because, oh, as we saw last Sunday night, oh, death, where is thy sting? Oh, grave, where is thy victory? No, Jesus Christ paid it all. And now we can be redeemed. We can be set free. We can be delivered. We can be forgiven. We can have eternal life. And all eternity we can praise the Lord. Not because of what we've done. Because of the, what God has done in the person of his son. Because we remember a dead person can't help himself. I close with this, please. One last point. You say, well, then, if God has done all this, then what is there for me to do? How do you get saved? How do you get eternal life? You say, I don't see that in here. Well, now, listen, Paul wasn't writing this to unsaved people. This message is being written to Christians, true believers. So he doesn't give the plan of salvation. But it's in here. And it's in here in two words. And if I read all ten verses again, and I said out loud, please give me the two words that tell us how to be spiritually born again, saved, redeemed, delivered. What are those two words? I think most of you would say, well, you want to try it without even reading the verses? What are the two words? There it is, through faith. For by grace are ye saved through faith. The word through means by faith. By faith, by means of faith. Really? Yeah. Oh, we might as well finish it. For by grace are ye saved through faith. That not of yourselves it 
faith, salvation, it's the gift of God. It's not of works, of course not. Dead person can't do anything. Oh, but we can do something. The only thing we can do is when God's spirit speaks to us and prompts us, we can by faith say, I believe. When we hear God's simple plan of salvation, we can choose to reject it. We can put it off, which is rejection. We can deny it. We can run away from it. We can say later. We can procrastinate. We can say, I don't believe that. Or we can say, I'm interested, but I need to think about it some more. Uh, whatever, however we want to spend. We can either reject it, deny it, refuse it, or we can say, thank you. Dear God, thank you. I receive Christ. I believe Christ. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. What must I do to be saved? The jailer cries out. And God's answer is, you can't do nothing. No, no, God didn't say you can't do anything. You can't do nothing. He says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. So what is faith? What is believing? Faith is taking God at his word. Belief, the word believe and faith in the Greek are the same word as pistuo, and it means to rely upon. It means to put your confidence in. It means to have faith in or with respect to. It means to trust. It means to, to rest in. So here's what you're saying. I'm lost. I know I'm dead in my trespasses and sins. I admit I live according to the world, Satan, and my fleshly nature. But I've heard God's good news now. That God loves me and has shown his love because Jesus Christ died for my sins and rose again. And now I understand all I have to do is repent of my unbelief, my sin, and put my trust in the person and the work of God's eternal son, Jesus Christ. And the moment I do that, no more trusting in my baptism, no more trusting in my church membership, no more trusting in giving some money to somebody, doing another good deed, trying something special. No, no more trust, no more relying upon, no more putting my confidence in anyone or anything. It's all right now in the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm doing that. Sink or swim. And I know it's swim time. I'm going with Jesus Christ. And God says, for by grace are you saved through faith. Not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not of works. Lest any man should boast. Would you bow your heads please? The need for salvation is shown in this passage. The reason for the need is shown in this passage. The means of salvation. The mercy, love and grace of God. Shown in this passage. And the way of salvation is shown in this passage. Believe. Just trust. I've been praying all week that if anybody would be in our service today that has never, ever truly been saved, that this would be the day that you'd accept the Lord. It has nothing to do with going to church. It has nothing to do with being baptized, being a member of a church, 
trying to be a good boy, a good girl, a good man, a good woman. No, no. It's just about who is the Lord Jesus Christ and what is your relationship with him? In whom are you trusting? That's, that's what it's all about. How many people today with their heads bowed and eyes closed would say, Pastor Carsey's? I have listened to the message. I do believe I understand what the Bible says here. And I know that if I die today, I have no doubt whatsoever I would go straight to heaven. I know I have eternal life. I know my sins have been forgiven. I know I am righteous in the sight of God. I know that I am spiritually alive because there was a time, maybe you don't know the date, there was a time and a place where I repented of my sin and I put my trust in God's Son, Jesus Christ. I accepted him. I put my faith in him as my Savior. And on that basis and that basis only, I am a true believer. No one looking, please, if you could say that as a testimony, would you raise your hand high, please? Would you put it back down? Would there be anybody today that would say, Pastor, I don't know if you noticed or not, but I did not raise my hand. I mean, I just have to be honest. I, I, I don't think I've ever truly been saved. I don't guess I've ever been born again. That means that I'm still spiritually dead, physically alive, but spiritually dead. No wonder I think like I think. No wonder I do what I do. Makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense now. Because I've been separated from God since I've been born. I never thought about that. If, if it's this simple, that God's gracious and merciful and loving and he sent his own son to die for me. And he rose again. He's alive. And now God says, just believe, just trust. I, I need to do that. I'd like to do that. Pastor, I'll not call out your name. I will never embarrass you. you say, Pastor, would you pray for me? Because I didn't raise my hand a few, a, a few minutes ago. I'd like to raise it now and just ask, as you think about me, would you pray for me that I will be saved? Would you do that, please, right now? No one looking, please. Anyone in this auditorium today? Just raise it for me to see it. As soon as I see it, you can put it down. Anyone? Pastor, if I died today, I have no confidence I would be in heaven. i got to be honest about that. I do not believe I've ever been saved. Right now, please, would you raise your hand? Is there someone? Anyone at all? Let's stand together, please.